Virginia Democrats reach for a familiar face, New Jersey Republicans nominate a new face, and Joe Manchin continues to help his party lose face. Hope you can face this week's edition of The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, and Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 367 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. There are two gubernatorial contests at stake this year, and Tuesday's primaries finalized a list of candidates. In Virginia, Democrats went back to the past, easily nominating former Governor Terry McAuliffe, who hopes to keep the job in Democratic hands. In his victory speech, McAuliffe, who previously served as governor from 2014 to 2017, acknowledged the toll taken last year by the COVID pandemic. The last year, as you all know, the COVID-19 pandemic put all of our progress at risk. All across America, families have been devastated. Right here in Virginia, 180,000 people lost their job because of COVID. Tens of thousands of people today are worried about being evicted. Their lives got upended. And thanks to the great leadership of Governor Ralph Northam and President Joe Biden, we have made important strides in our recovery. You know what? Getting shots in people's arms and getting people jobs here in Virginia. That's what you get with Democrats. McAuliffe, who received more than 62% of the primary vote in a multi-candidate field, will face Republican Glenn Youngkin, who won his party's nomination at a convention last month. Youngkin already has an ad up attacking McAuliffe by quoting the Democrats' opponents in the primary. Terry McAuliffe is not inspiring. Failed to keep his promises, so we don't get changed by recycling the same old policies and politicians of the past. Terry McAuliffe would talk about going big and bold, but when he had his chance, he left most Virginians behind. He failed the people of Virginia. So why does he deserve a second chance? The future versus the past. We need a new leader who will move Virginia forward and not back. A new kind of leader to bring a new day to Virginia. I'm Glenn Youngkin, candidate for governor, and I sponsored this ad. In New Jersey, Democratic Governor Phil Murphy, seeking a second term, was unopposed in his primary bid. He will face Republican Jack Chitterelli, a businessman and former state assemblyman who won his primary on Tuesday, even though he was less closely aligned with Donald Trump than the other candidates. At this point, Murphy is seen with a large lead. For the record, though, no New Jersey Democratic governor has been reelected since Brendan Byrne in 1977. Some other candidate news for 2022 to report. Val Demings, a Democratic congresswoman from the Orlando area, announced she will take on Florida Senator Marco Rubio next year. When you grow up in the South, poor, black, and female, you have to have faith in progress and opportunity. My father was a janitor and my mother was a maid. She said, Val, never grow tired of doing good. Never tired. Work hard, not just for yourself, but for others. My mother told me when someone gives you the opportunity to do something big, do not disappoint them. 
I'm running for the United States Senate because of two simple words, never tired. For his part, Rubio didn't sound worried. Look, I've always known that my opponent for the Senate was going to be a far-left liberal Democrat. Today we just found out which one of them Chuck Schumer's picked. I'm looking forward to this campaign because it's going to offer the people of Florida a very clear difference. You know, Congresswoman Val Demings is a do-nothing House member with not a single significant legislative achievement in her time in Congress. And there was a surprise in North Carolina. President Trump, as the headline speaker at last weekend's state GOP rally, gave an unexpected endorsement for the Senate seat being vacated by Republican Richard Burr. I'm going with Congressman Ted Budd, complete and total endorsement. Come on up, Ted. The convention actually led off with the announcement by Laura Trump, the former president's daughter-in-law, who said that she would not run for the Senate due to the demands of raising two small children. Bud, a congressman in his third term, is thought to be trailing his two other GOP rivals, former Governor Pat McCrory and former Congressman Mark Walker, who left office early this year after his district had been eliminated in 2020. Walker was led to believe he was going to be Trump's choice and was among the surprised Republicans when the endorsement of Bud came. Bud may have been surprised as well. Mr. President, Laura, this means the world to me. Thank you. We got a lot of hard work ahead. So let's win this together and let's get back to making America great again. Laura Trump may not make it to Congress next year, but she does provide the lead into this week's trivia question. Who was the last presidential in-law to run for the Senate? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll reveal the answer and winner of last week's trivia question later in the show, so stay tuned. Mother-in-law, mother-in-law. When the two Democrats running in the Georgia Senate runoffs unexpectedly won their races back in January, it gave their party a clean sweep, the White House, the House, and the Senate. And many began to envision a Biden presidency where many of his promises would come to fruition. They didn't count on Joe Manchin. Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia who has served in the Senate for more than 10 years, has made it clear that he will not join any of his party's efforts to weaken or end the filibuster, the procedure that Republicans have used to stop the creation of a January 6th commission. They used it on Tuesday to stop a bill aimed on having equal pay for women, and they will likely use it again to thwart other Biden priorities. This week, Manchin said he would not vote for the Democrats' voting rights bill, the one designed to fight GOP voter suppression efforts, because he argued it was a partisan move. Needless to say, he is driving his party nuts. But whether Biden and Chuck Schumer and others can do anything about it is another story altogether. 
Nick Fandos is a congressional correspondent with the New York Times. Nick, welcome to The Political Junkie. So glad to be here. Thanks, Ken. Well, thank you, Nick. It's great to have you here. And, you know, Democrats somehow thought they would be able to push through Biden's agenda because they have the House and the Senate. And they do have the Senate, but by the most narrow of margins. It's 50-50, with Vice President Kamala Harris breaking a tie. But they don't even have 50, since Manchin is following his own path. So it must be frustrating and infuriating for them. I think I think that's a real understatement. Um, you know, Democrats uh, and progressive Democrats have known the whole time what the, the rules of the road were going to be here. With a 50-50 Senate, any one senator, any one Democrat can be empowered to uh, make or break the entire agenda, as, as long as Republicans aren't going to come along. And on many of these key issues that you've identified and that are planks of Joe Biden's agenda, whether it be climate change, infrastructure, social policy, uh, anything like that, the Republicans are are certainly not going to come along. So now what we really have is Joe Manchin doing what uh, he always said he was going to do. And I think this is one of the hardest points for people, including his colleagues, to get their head around is, is Manchin has actually been remarkably consistent on this. He has said, I am not going to blow up the filibuster. Uh, and make this a, a partisan institution. Uh, and he said that pretty much on day one. He said it last summer before they even got the majority. And he said it again most recently, uh, this last Sunday, in an, in an op-ed in the uh, paper in his home state in West Virginia that was focused on the filibuster and the voting rights bill uh, and, and has been the, the kind of source of the latest round of, of hand-wringing and, and hair-pulling. Because you know, despite knowing all this all along, despite Manchin's consistency, I think his his colleagues and certainly Democrats all around town who have business before the Senate believe that eventually they would be able to convince him and other holdouts to change the Senate rules to essentially allow bills to pass with just Democratic votes. They thought we're gonna we're gonna wear them down eventually. We're gonna make the case, uh, and um, you know, here he is again saying, "Nope, I don't think so." Now, I was listening to Manchin on the Sunday talk shows, and he, I mean, he seems to have, this is my take of it, but he, he seems to have this naive notion about senators getting together and arriving at true bipartisanship. And I was listening to John Dickerson on CBS's Face the Nation. Let me play a little bit of Dickerson's conversation with Manchin from last Sunday. A lot of Democrats say that you are standing in the way of their priorities, and one of them appears to be the president. He said earlier this week in Tulsa, Talking about the frustration of getting things passed, he said two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends, depending on how you see it, he was either being honest about the limitations on what he can get done or he's saying you're standing in the way of his agenda. Well, I think that was taken out of content, John. Uh, The president knows how the Senate works better than probably any senator sitting today or as well as any senator sitting today. He understands we're a deliberate body because we're supposed to be a deliberate body to cool things off that come from the House. That's what we're doing. We're looking every way we can to bring this country together and unite the country. Dickerson was obviously getting frustrated. When you talk about deliberation and the Senate slow moving being one of its great functions, Democrats would say, while you're waiting for bipartisanship, what's happening in the states is 300 or so bills promoted by Republicans to limit voting rights, changes in the ability to uh, overturn elections if Democrats win. They say you can't wait while that's happening in the states, for voting rights to pass by a bipartisan margin in the Senate. 
Well, John, we have two bills before us, okay? We have the Voting Rights Act, which has passed over five times in our history here since 1965 in the most bipartisan way. And now we name it appropriately the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We can expand that to all 50 states. We can do so much more with that. And it's starting out to be bipartisan. I have Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska signed on in a bipartisan way. And we can work on that one, which truly does protect the voting rights. But I guess, Senator... Before the People Act is much greater... If, if I could just interrupt, you know politics and how it works. Why would Republicans, when they're making all these gains in the state houses and achieving their goals in the states, why would they vote for a bill someday in the Senate that's going to take away all the things they're achieving right now in those state houses? John, they achieved what they've achieved before they went thinking they had to make changes. Why in the world would they want to make changes that basically subvert? Because I can tell you what goes around comes around. It could be more damaging to them, too. The bottom line is the fundamental purpose of, 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 of our democracy is the freedom of our elections. If we can't come to agreement on that, God help us, John. And someone's got to fight for this. And we've got to say, listen, the divided country that we're in today, the insurrection that we saw January the 6th, if we don't try to heal that, if we don't make every effort and go beyond the call of duty, then what are we and who are we? Nick, it seems like Manchin has this notion of a of a dream world called bipartisanship that may not exist in real life. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think this is what many of his Democratic colleagues are just most frustrated about. They say, Joe, just look around. There are not 10 Republicans on voting issue or on any other. They don't want to work with us on this stuff. So you are, you're, you're going down a dead end. You're, you're not operating in reality. Of course, we'd love Republicans to work with us, too, and support these things, but they don't. And we'd rather get something done than, than not here while we have this rare moment where we control both the House, the Senate, and the White House. I think as to what are the roots of this um, intense attachment to bipartisanship in Joe Manchin, I, I think you have to look at his own political brand, his, his career in West Virginia, a state that is used to be very democratic, but um, in the last 20 or 30 years has moved was always culturally conservative, but has moved uh, hard into the Republican camp. And Joe Manchin is basically the last Democrat standing there. And he's done it by promoting a brand of, of kind of middle-of-the-road common sense, or what he would say is common sense politics, that, you know, he's, he's not going to push his voters on, on social issues like abortion or guns. You know, he's more conservative than most Democrats there, but he'll vote with the Democrats on big government spending, and uh, he's all right raising taxes in some cases. And he manages to, you know, keep keep winning, even as Donald Trump won that state by, what, 30 points or something. Um, so part of it is just Joe Manchin's personal brand of politics that he's invested in and he thinks works and will help the Democrats nationally. Part of it, and I'm not the first person to observe this, is is how he learned about the Senate. And that was through, you know, the legendary Senator Robert Byrd, who was longtime senator from West Virginia, literally wrote the history of the Senate, uh, and, and was somebody who I think impressed upon Manchin the idea that the Senate is a unique institution in American life that runs on bipartisanship. That is, and, and that means it's necessarily slow, and it's hard to find agreement, and it means you know, maybe the Congress isn't able to act on, on uh, pressing issues of the day until there is enough agreement or enough consensus for the two parties to come together, and that ultimately that's, that's what's healthiest for the country. That being said, Byrd served in a very different Senate than, than Joe Manchin does, and I think that the, the big question now is, is, is that kind of thing even possible, or is, as some of 
Manchin's fellow Democrats suggest. Is that a fool's errand? I mean, is he, is he living in the past? I was just going to say the same exact thing. Both Byrd and Joe Biden, too, actually, both served in the Senate at a different moment in time. You know, the, uh, the rancor and the distrust weren't as pronounced as it is now. So I know he seems to cite Robert Byrd, but I just wonder if Robert Byrd were still here today, if he, if he would even recognize uh, what the Senate looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of good reasons to say he probably wouldn't. And, uh, you know, look, it's, it's what you raise is interesting to think about how, how both Biden and Manchin, who are, Biden actually served in that older era of the Senate. Manchin, I think, heard more about it. You know, he's been in Washington 10 years. But, you know, I think Biden is struggling, seeing as he tries to figure out, you know, how to handle his big infrastructure and jobs proposal right now. Does he want to try and hatch a bipartisan deal or go uh, just with Democrats? I think Biden seems to, you know, whether it's based on who he's surrounded by or just being in the, the presidency rather than a single senator, in many ways seems to recognize uh, more than Manchin does that not only have times changed, but we're not going to be able to unilaterally or we're not going to be able to force the Senate to go back to being what it was. Uh, I think Biden would like that to be the case, but some part of him recognizes that that's not possible. Well, he sh- we should also recognize what, uh, what Mitch McConnell has said from the beginning about uh, what he's trying to do. 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. 100% of my focus is on standing up to this administration. What we have in the United States Senate is total unity from Susan Collins to Ted Cruz in opposition to what the new Biden administration is trying to do to this country. It, it, it may be too early in the ballgame uh, to know what decisions either of them ultimately make around this stuff. I mean, there are Democrats who still believe Manchin could change his mind. But, you know, then again, he's. we should broaden this a little bit to say Joe Manchin's not the only Democrat who's uncomfortable about getting rid of the filibuster. Kirsten Sinema of Arizona has taken a very clear stand against making that kind of change. Uh, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, Jackie Rosen of Nevada, John Tester of Montana have expressed degrees of discomfort with it. You know, they tend to get overshadowed by Manchin, who's outspoken and, and willing to be a kind of force field, a, a shield around them. Maybe for political reasons. I'm sure they're very happy to let Manchin get all the attention and all the arrows. That's right, and he's happy to. He seems happy to take it. But you know, when push comes to shove, those are votes that Democratic leaders would have to win over as well. You know, you mentioned early, and, and you're absolutely correct about this, that West Virginia was basically once upon a time, for the longest time, a solidly one-party state, Democratic. And, of course, now it's become very Republican. As you point out, uh, after Wyoming, it was uh, Donald Trump's best state. So clearly, I mean, if you just look at the politics of survival, Joe Manchin can't be seen as doing Biden's bidding in such a pro-Trump state and expect to survive. That's correct. I mean, he has said that he does not plan to, doesn't necessarily plan to run for re-election again. He's in his 70s and, and won again in 2018. He's not up until 2024. Um, we'll see where things stand there. Manchin famously, you know, before he became the center of all the action in the Senate and maybe the most influential person, was famous for complaining about how miserable he was uh, here and how much he disliked uh, the Senate these days. So so we'll see. But I I think he and this gets back to your earlier question, I think it's it's not just about himself. I think he thinks that he has some important things to say and teach the Democratic Party about 
you know, how to uh, remain a majority party in the country. And there's a lot of other states like West Virginia where Democrats have really lost their footing. And, and in an institution like the Senate, you know, over time, it's going to, if that trend continues, it's going to make it harder and harder for them to win majorities. And so I think he thinks, well, I'm an important influence on moderating my party and also a spokesman for my party to, to people out in the country so they can see what we're about. You know, I'm, I'm a counterweight going up against uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Bernie Sanders and the more progressive members of the party. Um, even if they do, you know, they do see eye to eye on a lot of policy points, actually. You mentioned that, uh, the, that other Democrats may be secretly, privately rooting, uh, rooting Manchin on. You mentioned uh, Maggie Hassan and, and John Tester and, and certainly Kirsten Sinema. But, but you also talked to members of the Senate. How angry are progressive Democrats towards Manchin, and do they express that? I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say some of them are ap- apoplectic. Um, even if they should have seen this coming or could have seen this coming, I think they're they're pretty furious because, you know, it's been 10 years since Democrats had unified control in this way of Washington, and they, they think this is the brief window to do something important and, and put the country in the direction that they want to put it in. You know, we saw uh, this week um, a couple of House members, um, Jamal Bowman being one of progressive from New York, come out and basically say, you know, Joe Manchin's the new Mitch McConnell, who follow anything about politics, you know, that's kind of the ultimate insult from a Democrat. You know, he's the one standing in our way. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. I think, you know, th- there are groups that are planning uh, protests and marches in West Virginia next week. You know, Manchin is going to come under an incredible amount of, of pressure. Now, I think his Senate colleagues have tried to mostly hold their fire publicly right now, because they still, you know, they don't want to give up hope that they can change his mind. And, and I think a lot of people who watch Joe Manchin closely say, he thrives on that kind of opposition, and it may lead him to dig in his heels. So just from a strategic point of view, his Senate colleagues, I think, don't want to alienate him, uh, don't want to you know, give him a, a kind of uh, crusade on this issue. So they, they also have to know, the, the, certainly the left has to know, that if they push, push, push Manchin, I mean, he could ult- I mean, I don't know if this would ever happen, but if you push him so far... What about the possibility of him switching parties? And, of course, Mitch McConnell instantly becomes the majority leader. That's right. I mean, it would have huge implications. That's a question that's been being asked around here on Capitol Hill this week. But mostly jokingly, I mean, Joe Manchin has long, deep ties to the Democratic Party. Um, And as I said, on big issues, really votes with the Democrats. He voted to preserve the Affordable Care Act. He voted against Republicans' tax cuts in 2017. He voted for Joe Biden's big... American Rescue Plan. Uh, he's voted for most of Biden's nominees. You know, he's a he is a Democrat through and through in his heart. He just has, you know, a, a different set of views and opinions on this institution and how it should work and and what the Democrats' priorities should be. And so, I, I don't think there's a the risk is so much driving them out of the party as you know squandering whatever small sliver of a chance they may or may be for his colleagues to convince him to, if not abolish the filibuster, you know maybe make some carve-outs, make it easier to get a couple items of their agenda through. And if they can't do that, if they can't get uh, Manchin to budge in any way, that, that obviously limits what Biden and the Democrats can get accomplished. And we're coming around, I can't believe I'm saying this, but we're coming around to the 2022 midterm elections already, where many people think that the Republicans could win back the House, if not the Senate. So the the, the ticking time clock is uh, is not in the Democrats' favor. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I think it's the, the typical view on Capitol Hill is that, you know, while a, a term is two years, you, you basically have the first year to get something done, uh, to get something, to get the big things done. Uh, you know, it's when you have the mandate coming out of an election, your members aren't yet worried about the next election in quite the same way. The opposition party isn't yet sure what their line of attack is going to be. But, you know, the farther you get into the the end of this year and, and early next year, um, all those things start weighing on debates about policy and the finer points of of priority making and things like that. Not to mention that in a 50-50 Senate, I mean, God forbid, uh, there's a lot of um, older members who, you know, could fall sick or, or even die. And, and, you know, Democrats could find themselves uh, effectively losing their majority really at any at any moment. Um, uh, you know, that is morose, but it's the reality of, of how tenuous their hold on power is right now. And then puts more pressure on them to get things done quickly. Absolutely. Nick Fandos is a congressional correspondent with the New York Times. Nick, it was absolutely great having you on the show. My pleasure, Ken. Thank you. to reveal the answer and winner of last week's trivia question, which was, who was the last Republican member of Congress to resign because of a sex scandal? The answer, Patrick Meehan. The Pennsylvania Republican resigned on April 27, 2018, after a former aide accused the married congressman of sexual harassment after she started dating someone else and he retaliated against her. And the randomly selected winner is... Tom Fitzgerald of Delren, New Jersey. Tom wins the coveted political junkie button. Don't forget, you can always find our political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No. Americans' view of their country as the world's sole superpower took a big hit in 1949 when the Soviet Union tested their own atomic bomb. And their confidence was further shattered when Moscow was outpacing the U.S. in the space race, especially with the announcement in 1961 that cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin had completed one orbit around the Earth. Today in this scene at Moscow airport, Yuri Gagarin was embraced by the leader of the communist world as the hero of a communist victory. 
And in a day of wild jubilation, he was embraced by the Soviet people as a new pioneer, an image of their pride and their ambitions. A Columbus, a Lindy, Lenin in a spacesuit. President Kennedy was philosophical about Gagarin's accomplishment and generous with his praise when he was asked about it at his news conference. President, yeah. could you give us your views, sir, about the Soviet achievement of putting a man in orbit and what it would mean to our space program as such? Well, it is a most impressive uh, scientific uh, accomplishment. And also, I think that uh, we, uh, all of us, uh, as members of the race, have the greatest uh, admiration for the uh, Russian who participated in this extraordinary feat. I have already sent uh, congratulations to uh, Mr. Khrushchev, and uh, I uh, send uh, congratulations to uh, the man who was involved. But in reality, Washington was seething and panicking. First, there was Moscow launching its Sputnik satellite in 1957. Gagarin circling the Earth in 1961 made it only worse. In fact, the space race became far more than a contest between astronauts and cosmonauts. It was presented as the ultimate battle for winning the Cold War. And which style of government, America's or Russia's, would prevail in the end? Jeff Shessel has written an extraordinary book on the politics of it all, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Four years ago, we had Jeff on The Political Junkie to talk about his outstanding book on FDR's attempt to pack the Supreme Court. It's great to have you back, Jeff, with another great book. Thanks so much, Ken. It's good to be back. Well, it's great to have you back. And is it fair to say, first, that after Sputnik, and then especially later after Yuri Gagarin's orbital flight, that Washington was panicking, that, that the U.S. was losing the space race? I think panic is not too strong a word. This was absolutely the mood in Washington after Sputnik in 1957. Uh, people talked about an atmosphere of Pearl Harbor. Uh, and uh, when the Soviets, uh, not long after Sputnik, actually sent uh, a robotic craft to crash land into the moon, they didn't quite have the technology yet to soft land on the moon. But this was the first uh, this was the first human craft, a human-built craft that was sent to the moon. It, it set off another wave of panic in the United States, and, and one prominent archbishop in New York compared it to, to Hitler's march into, into Poland in 1939. Mm. So this was very much the feeling in the United States, and not just in the U.S., but around the free world, that if the Soviet Union was so quick to dominate this, this new arena of the, the heavens above, that they would be unstoppable. And as John Kennedy himself said when he ran for president in 1960, if the Soviets control space, they can control the earth. Well, you know, I'm of the age where I remember the accomplishments of the Soviet Union. And, and also, you know, when the U.S. assembled the, its Mercury space program, I remember, I still remember the excitement and the pride. And, and I think all my friends felt the same way. I remember, you know, watching all the flights uh, on, on television. We were all captivated. Well, this was the, the sense of excitement, again, both in the United States and around the world. But before the excitement, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anxiety that this was not just a race, which suggests a kind of friendly competition, but... This was an existential struggle, and America was losing. America was losing badly and was well behind the Soviet Union. It was not clear to them then, as it is clear to us now with the benefit of 50 years of hindsight, that 
we would not only catch up to the Soviets, but we would surpass the Soviets and we would get to the moon and they would, in fact, never get to the moon um, uh, with uh, cosmonauts anyway. And so the the sense of excitement and 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 the energy in the country uh, about this was was bound up with the feeling that this was hugely significant this was not just a matter as you said of national pride although that was part of it but it was also a matter of national security and that was how most americans saw it and that was how president kennedy saw it very much it's not how president eisenhower saw it, which is one of the reasons that the United States had fallen far behind by 1960 and 1961 when Kennedy took office. Your book really focuses on uh, is John Glenn. I mean, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom were the first guys to go up. You know, they went up and they came down. They didn't orbit the Earth. But it was John Glenn who did orbit the Earth. Let me just start off with a question about John Glenn. Why was he the one chosen to be the first American to orbit the Earth? I mean, why not Shepard or Grissom or Scott Carpenter or something like that? Well, it's an important question, and and, uh, there was a sense at the time that when Glenn had been passed over for the first two flights, as you said, Shepard and Grissom had gone up, and they they went up on what were called suborbital flights. It's still a term that is used in, in space exploration. It means it never gets to orbit. The the rocket went up, the capsule came up just into the edge of space and then and then fell back down. The whole thing was over in 15 minutes. And so it was kind of for the United States like getting some points on the board, but but the country was still very very far behind in this competition with the Soviet Union. And then Grissom went up and did the same thing that the Shepard had done and there was the sense that the Soviets had already by this point not only sent the first man into space as you mentioned Yuri Gagarin but but Gagarin had orbited the Earth. The Soviets just skipped the step of the, of the suborbitals, and they went straight to orbitals. So, so there was a sense of, of embarrassment, really, in the United States. And it was embarrassment as much as anything else that caused NASA, after those two first those, those suborbital flights, to call off the suborbital program and, and to say, we've, we've, got to get, we've got to get moving. We've got to get an orbital flight up there. And we're not sure that we're ready. We'd like to do more tests. We'd like to, to send more chimps up and, and to do the other things that the program was doing to get ready. But again, this was not just about points on the board, as I said a moment ago. This was about the way that the United States was perceived around the world. And there were uh, opinion polls being taken around the world, Gallup polls and others, showing that that in the eyes of the world, and frankly in the eyes of many Americans, the fact that the U.S. could not catch up to the Soviets meant that the United States was going to fall behind the Soviets technologically writ large and, and also ultimately economically and militarily. The, the Soviets seemed to be reaching the future faster than, than the U.S. was. And so there was this urgent need to, to catch up. And that was why uh, Glenn was assigned the orbital, when in fact what he was supposed to be assigned was was another one of these suborbitals. It had just become uh, too embarrassing. These these short shots, as they were called, we couldn't do another and keep a straight face in in international negotiations. Well, I think the best part about your book is the, I guess the 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 the, the preparation for for Glenn's launch. Um, this is Cape Canaveral. It's February of sixty two. And in your book, you know, I, I mean, I'm reading it, and I'm, <laughs> this is silly, but I'm, re- I'm feeling tense about how everything was. It, was. it wasn't only about whether we could match the Russians or, or surpass the Russians, but, 
but there was a real risk to Glenn's safety. I mean, you wrote about the, the risk of the protective shields being damaged, which meant Glenn would have burnt to death upon reentry. So there was, ner- there was a lot of raw nerves uh, at the time, and certainly I felt it reading the book. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you felt that way, <laughs> because this is one of the things that I really wanted to do, is to restore the sense of tension, which was really profound. And across the country, but also within NASA and certainly within the White House, the sense that, that Glenn might not make it back alive. The suborbital flights that I mentioned before, uh, those went up on a redstone rocket, and the redstones were just not powerful enough to push a heavy object like a capsule containing an astronaut all the way into orbit. That had to wait for the Atlas rocket to be ready, and the Atlas was, was um, famously unreliable. And by unreliable, I mean, this thing was blowing up on the launch pad, you know, quite spectacularly in front of the world press. And so there was the sense that Glenn was right. He was the first human being to ride up atop an Atlas rocket. And who knew what might happen? Even the president of the company that was building the Atlas rocket, the Convair Astronautics, uh, they were called, the president of Convair on the eve of John Glenn's flight would say that the rocket only had an 80% reliability rate, meaning there was a one out of five chance that something was going to go wrong with this rocket. So the longer that Glenn's flight was delayed, and it was delayed many times over many months, the, the flight was scrubbed 10 times over the course of four months, and it started to seem really star-crossed. It started to just seem like this wasn't going to happen or that a disaster was inevitable. And the longer the flight was postponed, the more likely it seemed that, that something horrible was going to go wrong. Well, I want to play some, I want to play some of that vintage footage uh, from the launch. Godspeed, John Glenn. 10, 9, 8, 7. Jeff, you, you just heard the memorable Godspeed, John Glenn, and, and the sound of the Atlas rocket taking off. And I mean, we know how it ends. Uh, of course, it was successful. There was a ticker tape parade in New York City, which I also remember. But, but somehow, <laughs> here I go again, but your writing made me forget how it ended. It was like a suspense novel. And, and the part in your book where you talk about the letter he wrote, John Glenn wrote, to his young children before takeoff, I mean, this was just... Emotion. It was dramatic, and then you talked about the tension. It was, but it was emotional. I just felt like, my goodness, something could go, very well go wrong. That was something that John Glenn himself felt very acutely, and and this is something that I I don't think I, I recognized before I discovered this script that you mentioned in in his archives. This is something that had never been published before, and had never been reported before, and and I, I was um, I, I felt chills when I read it. Uh, this was a, a script for a recording, a reel-to-reel recording made for his children, and he made a separate one for his wife, Annie, to be played if he didn't come back alive. And it begins, the script, and he's written it out on, on yellow legal paper. He says, if you hear this, I've been killed. And, and it proceeds from there to talk about his the peace that he's made with, with God and 
his views on the, the afterlife. He, he coaches his children who were teenagers at the time on how he'd like them to conduct themselves during his funeral at Arlington, knowing that there probably wouldn't be a body to bury. I mean, these are the sorts of things that, that he's ruminating about on the eve of his flight. And he sends this recording or these two recordings. And you heard that Scott Carpenter saying Godspeed just before for uh, uh, liftoff a moment ago. Just before that, Glenn is sitting strapped into the capsule atop this Atlas rocket. And just before liftoff, Scott Carpenter patched John Glenn through to say goodbye to Annie. And one of the last things that, that John says to, to Annie Glenn is, did you get the recordings that I sent you? And she says, yes, I, I did. So this was very much on his mind that he might not come back, despite all of the kind of calm and, and confident signals he had sent to the public. He was feeling that danger very, very acutely. You know, I don't use the word hero too often. I think uh, the word has been cheapened by its overuse. But but these guys, the, these astronauts, and especially John Glenn, um, they were heroes. Um, tell me a little bit more about John Glenn from New Concord, Ohio. I mean, he was a small-town boy with, as you say, deep faith. But who was John Glenn? John Glenn lived all of uh, you know what to, to many Americans were the sort of comforting cliches of, of life that they thought even even in the 1950s and 60s when they emerged on the national stage these astronauts people thought that that life had been left behind but but John Glenn had really lived it he he was born in in a small town he was actually born in, in Cambridge neighboring town but grew up in New Concord which was a town of about a thousand people it's a tiny little town. And uh, it was a, a, a religious town. Uh, most of the folks in town were, were Presbyterian. As John Glenn always said, that everybody either belonged to one Presbyterian church or the other one that was across the street. And uh, very patriotic. And, uh, you know, all those, those small-town values were, were not cliches for, for John Glenn. Um, he grew up in, imbibing them, and he held on to them um, through his life. And, and I think it, it has led some... Either biographers or or uh, movies, and, and some of us have seen all of these these movies, The Right Stuff, and others, to kind of dismiss John Glenn as a kind of hokey Boy Scout Sunday school teacher. And the thing about Glenn is, he was a scout and he was a Sunday school teacher. He was these things, but he was also, as I think his notes at the archives and other uh, recollections of others around him um, make clear, he was fiercely competitive. He was fiercely ambitious and and a, a, frankly an, an edgier and more complex character than he tends to get portrayed and i think that script that we talked about a minute ago is is one indication of it but his his wartime heroics and there's really no other way of putting it in world war ii in korea show someone who is not only a skilled fighter pilot but a, but a really daring risk-taking fighter pilot who uh became famous among the other pilots for how many holes would be shot into his plane by the time he, he got back to base. At one point, uh, enemy fire in Korea blew a hole in the tail of his plane the size of a basketball. And Glenn somehow managed to get this thing, this plane, back to base and then posed for photographs with the, with the hole in his tail. I mean, this, this was a guy who was willing to take risks uh, and take risks for a cause, for a reason, whether that was winning uh, those two wars, or whether it was advancing America's interest in the space race. Well, you know, I'm thinking, I mean, I, hate, I I want to use the language of the early 60s, but 
it felt like if we could invent the perfect guy to stand up to the communists, to, 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 to the Kremlin, it was John Glenn. He, he really was straight from central casting. And it was clear from the first moment that he stepped out on the national stage. I mean, John Glenn was the only one of the Mercury 7 who was actually famous before he was an astronaut. Glenn had set a, a speed record um, as a test pilot flying a, a Crusader jet from, from L.A. to Brooklyn in three hours and 23 minutes. He did that in 1957. He wound up on the cover of every front page of every newspaper in the country. He wound up with a stint on Name That Tune, a game show on, <laughs> on CBS. And so when he reemerges two years later in 1959 as an astronaut, Everybody knows him. The public knows him. The, the press knows him. The other guys were, were some of the top pilots in the country, of course, but they were not known quantities. And at that very first press conference where they're all introduced, Glenn is, is utterly at ease. He's really, he's playing to the cameras. He's playing to the crowd. He's, he's utterly authentic. Uh, he's funny. He's patriotic. Uh, he's not ashamed to, to talk about his faith or his family. The others had no interest particularly in talking about these things. He struck every note on the register, and he really sort of leaped out above the others as being the one that the public not only admired but adored. You know, we, should also, uh, we also shouldn't forget that Glenn's mission was sandwiched between the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion and the Cuban Missile Crisis, so things were already tense with Moscow without adding a space race to it all. That's exactly right, Ken. And, and one of the things that I really want to bring across in this book is that I, I think a lot of us are used to thinking of the space race as this storyline that happens over here, and then the Cold War is that storyline that happens over there. And yes, sometimes in, in, in stories about the space race, the Cold War is sort of background. We know we're competing against the Russians. But you have two different sets of books on your shelf, on your shelves. And so, you know, what I really wanted to do was to bring these two stories back into the same frame, which is how they were experienced at the time. I mean, for John Kennedy, the fact that the Soviets orbited a second man at the beginning of August 1961, German Titov orbited the Earth for 24 hours at the beginning of August. And the fact that a week later, the Soviets start to build the wall in Berlin. And two weeks after that, at the end of August 1961, the Soviets begin testing some of the most powerful nuclear weapons that the world had ever seen, uh, testing them in the atmosphere above Central Asia. All of this was connected. It was all part of the same threat that Kennedy and the United States and the free world were facing. And it had to be considered as part of the same picture. It wasn't just channel, you know, channel one and channel two. This was all part of the same story. You know, the, the things that made Glenn such a hero, they really weren't duplicated in, in his political career. I mean, yes, he was elected four times to the Senate from Ohio, but but first, he failed in his first attempt. Actually, his first two attempts, he failed. And he went nowhere in his bid for president in 1984. Do you ever wonder why the things that captivated America about Glenn's spaceflight failed to do the same when he ran for president? It is a, a fascinating question, and I have thought a lot about it. Um, because I didn't come of age during during the first space race, but I did come of age during the 1980s when John Glenn briefly ran uh, that, that, that campaign for president that you mentioned. And, and I always admired John Glenn greatly, but I didn't, I can't say that I considered him to be an exciting, charismatic politician. That wasn't 
the appeal of John Glenn. He was earnest. He was serious. He was hardworking. Uh, he was a serious senator, but he was not an exciting figure, not in the way that he had been in the late 50s and 1960s. And when you see that that first press conference that I mentioned before in April of 1959, I mean, he's a movie star. He's incredibly dynamic. He, he's, a, he's a performer. And this is one of the reasons that, that he, he became such a star in that moment. And one of the things that's incredible really is that from that first moment, people are talking about him, not just as a future politician, but as a future president. And the Kennedys recognize very early on that, that John Glenn uh, is going to be a, a great Democratic candidate for something someday. And they actually, both the president and Robert Kennedy, urged him to, to run for, for Senate uh, from Ohio, which he resisted for a while because he really, what he wanted to do was what all the other astronauts wanted to do. He wanted to go to the moon. And when it became clear that that wasn't going to be in his future, he decided that he would go ahead and pursue that career in politics. But it, but it never quite fulfilled the sense of expectation that had set in from the very first moments. Jeff Schessel is the author of a great new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Godspeed, Jeff Schessel. <laughs> Thank you, Ken, and to you. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven. Commencing countdown engines on Three, two, check ignition And may God's love be with you That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. Oh, did I mention the Political Junkie store? That has Political Junkie t-shirts and socks just in time for Father's Day? I can't remember. Anyway, if you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. And please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Hey, for here am I sitting in a tin can. For 